0: You're listening to the podcast series for Women Vision SC 2020, a production of South Carolina Public Radio. I'm Linda O'Brien. We'll hear interviews from some remarkable women from across the state. They were nominated by our listeners. Join us now with one of the 11 Women of Vision SC. This week, we talk with T. Lily Littlewater. She is CEO of the South Carolina Indian Affairs Commission, and she has supported veterans, families, children, and women. Welcome, T. Lily Littlewater. I understand you have been in the volunteer community organizing since you were 19 years old. What drives this passion?
1: Honestly, I think it's a spiritual compulsion. I've never felt like I had a choice. I think it's something intangible and inexplicable that drives me it feels like there are also a thousand ancestors in my heart that are constantly giving me a nudge uh, in this way or that way they always give me direction and i always seem to know where it is that i'm supposed to go but it's not always a conscious decision. Even beginning to do this was not a conscious decision. It's just something that I fell into as a young person because, again, something in my heart just told me that's where I belonged. And when you say these
0: ancestors are giving you direction, what direction, what are you trying to achieve?
1: sometimes i don't know what i'm trying to achieve to be honest with you there are so many directions to go in the indian community and with any kind of human rights especially native american rights because there are so many things that need to be resolved so oftentimes it's not necessarily a goal that i set it's something that just comes to me organically, and I see that it needs to be resolved. So then I set my sights on a resolution.
0: You are the CEO of the South Carolina Indian Affairs Commission. You also organize the Indigenous Women's Alliance Committee. Tell us about this work.
1: The South Carolina Indian Affairs Commission began in about the mid-1980s. All of the chiefs in the state of the original historic tribes in South Carolina decided that they would come together because it would help them to be a cohesive group rather than just individuals and getting the things that they needed to do, to do done. They were especially interested in state recognition for tribes. Uh, those were the Waccamaw, Santee, Edisto, Lower Eastern Cherokee, Catawba and PD. Those particular tribes began the South Carolina Indian Affairs Commission. Their fathers and grandfathers and generations back had all known each other. Um, so they were all very familiar with each other as Native people and uh, they just had a desire to come together and get very, very important work done. And when you say recognition from the state, what sort of
0: recognition and has it been successful?
1: It has been. Under Governor Hodges, we were very lucky and privileged that he gave us a chance to write our own criteria, actually, for state recognition by forming an ad hoc committee under his administration. And we were able to write our own criteria and pass that through the legislature. We had been trying for about 10 years prior to that, and it did pass. And now all of those tribes are state recognized, plus a few more that have also come forward and put forth the There's a lot of paperwork and history and requirements. It's a very difficult process along, it's a painstaking process, and they've done that successfully. And what does this mean for the people in the tribes? I think that it is extremely validating for them. It is a very difficult existence when you see yourself in textbooks or in museums as no longer existing. I can't tell you the amount of times I have still see occasionally that the Atisso tribe is extinct, or the Pd tribe is extinct, or there are only a few living Waukamaw. That type of thing it's right in the textbook. Right it, in textbooks or on the internet or that kind of thing. You know, you'll occasionally see this now, not as much as we used to. So it's. It was incredibly validating for them to be seen as a living, breathing part of South Carolina, not just an historical, very, very very historical, uh, important historical part of South Carolina, but a living, breathing people who still exist and function in their traditional ways and in their traditional communities and areas that they've always been in so state recognition was extremely important it also allowed some privileges that they did not have before state recognition they could not sell their art as being made by a native american without being recognized by both houses of the legislature in South Carolina. That's a federal law from the Federal Indian Arts and Crafts Board. So they were unable to sell their art as Native Americans. And now they are. And now they are. They were unable to get scholarships, perhaps for their children. There are many things like that that they weren't eligible for. So now that's changed and it was very important that it changed. You organized
0: the first Native American powwow in Columbia and the first intertribal powwow in the state. Tell us about powwows and why that's important for your culture and history.
1: Powwows are amazing. First of all, I want to say I'm proud of every single Native American parent who have full time jobs, who every single weekend put their children in the car, pack up everything they need and drive wherever they need to go so that their children are educated in their traditions and able to practice their traditions. They're like huge family reunions. We're all so happy to see each other. It's always a wonderful day. Powwows are not just a gathering; they are a spiritual gathering. They are again family reunions. They are sometimes political discussions that happen amongst you know everyone when they get together. We try to avoid that because we like for it to be uh, more spiritual than anything else. But you know that happens. You get to see everybody's new babies and celebrate graduations Uh, so it's powwows are extremely important to us the reason why i started a powwow here is because there were other tribes in the state having powwows for their tribes but there was nothing for people like me and some other friends of mine who were called intertribal. We are from tribes outside of South Carolina. So I would like, I, would, I, would, I wanted a venue, excuse me, I want a venue for other people to be able to do the same thing, to get together and celebrate. Although the state's tribes and other people did, of course, were invited and were there, as were the public. But I thought it was important that there be an intertribal powwow for all Native Americans in South Carolina. So tell
0: us about your experience growing up. Where did you grow up? And what, inter,
1: you mentioned intertribal, what tribe do you hearken from? I am um, Minnie Kondu Sakowin. That is what some people call a part of the Sioux tribe. We do not use the word Sioux necessarily. It's French for one thing. It also can mean little snake. <laughs> we are one of the tribes of the Lakota, uh, the seven council fires. My father is Irish, which I'm equally proud of. And also he came from originally from Cape Fear Indians in North Carolina, which are now a part of the Lumbee. Growing up, so tell us about that in terms of your passion for your heritage. That's always an interesting question because I'm a military brat. More Native Americans serve in the United States Armed Services than any other ethnicity per populace. So my father literally changed the curvature of my life by walking from the coastal sea islands of South Carolina to Columbia to join the Army Air Corps when he was 16 years old. And I had the privilege of living outside of the United States, uh, Tehran American School. I'm a proud TAS alumni. Um, And living in, I believe, other countries and having those kinds of experiences taught me a great deal about acceptance and non-judgment of others. And it taught me a much broader horizon as a Native American person. Of course, my traditional values teach me that anyway, but it was great because it reinforced it so much. Um, I loved Iran because... It was an ancient culture, much like mine, so I was able to relate to their love of culture and the love of their land. And so Iran is almost like a second home to me. I was very, very lucky and very privileged to be able to live amongst Iranian people.
0: And you lived there for four years. I did. And so now Iran is very much in the news. Yes, of course. It must be difficult for you to think about the people that you knew, your time? Yes.
1: It can be traumatic. Um, I think we all have, all of us who went to Tehran American School or lived in Iran, because there were other schools that American children went to, as well as Iranian Americans. And of course, you know, our Iranian family, that, you know, we call them our Iranian family. We all have a form, I think some form of PTSD almost. It was traumatic. We love the country deeply, we love the people deeply. And I always try to encourage everyone to remember that Iranians are not their government, just as we are not all our government. Uh, Iranian people are very warm and loving and have a very high regard for Americans.
0: And this was at the time of the downfall of the Shah?
1: It was, yes.
0: So it must have been a difficult, difficult time.
1: It was very unfortunate. I'm a very peaceful person. I believe in warriorship because that's the traditions that I come from. And I understand, you know, defending your home and defending your people. But, you know, I often tell people when they talk about, oh, let's bomb them to the Stone Age or, you know, we're going to, kick their rears or whatever it is, you know, they say when they become angry with other countries, you've never seen a tank coming down your street. You know, rows and rows of tanks in front of your house. It has a very very long la- la- a lifelong effect on you. You never forget it.
0: And do you think that experience then is part of the reason that you
1: are involved in what you are involved in activism, social justice. Absolutely, absolutely um you know we can we can talk about iran in a very warm-hearted way i can also talk about iran in a way that speaks of their horrible violations of human rights and of course we can do that across the world we can actually we can also do that here in the united states uh, especially in the american indian community you know it's the constant violation of human rights that i see that motivates me and what are you seeing now? What, what is still continuing? In the American Indian yes. community specifically? Yes. The human rights violations that are continually happening in the American community currently are Indian child removal. And that would be an ethical Indian child removal. So many Indian children, Native American children, are removed from their parents because for one thing, poverty is not neglect. Also because there is a belief that these children would be better raised in non-native households because they would be given more opportunities. However, it's misunderstood that the opportunities are their value systems that they learn in their tribes and in their ceremonies that they grow up experiencing. So they're denied all of those things. So this is from social services, government entities? Exactly. Even if we have available Native American foster homes, they're completely ignored. Uh, We have had two recent Indian child removals in South Carolina over the last five years. The children were trafficked from outside of South Carolina. Unfortunately, we have some very unscrupulous adoption agencies. There's no other way to say it. They sell children. They're private adoption agencies. They charge a great deal of money for the children. People tend to feel that they are being benevolent because Native American children, they think, deserve good homes instead of living on those horrible, povertyous reservations. And they think they're doing a good thing, but they don't realize that, you know, the child has been perhaps removed unethically from the parents and we've even had a judge tell us that you know being in the courtroom saying i don't care about the indian child uh, welfare act this is south carolina we're going to do this my way so you asked me previously about the indigenous women's alliance and that is one of our committees of the South Carolina Indian Affairs Commission. We happen to have an amazing chairperson named Kathleen Hayes who runs that committee, and she is currently working with the head of the Children and Family Committee for the South Carolina State Legislature. She's a Republican, and then we have another senator working with us who is a Democrat, so we have bipartisan support um, on a state Indian Child Welfare Act law, so this will no longer happen. To prevent this. Exactly.
0: And what about women? This has also been an issue. Yes. Um, Yes. Women who are are disappearing. Is this
1: still happening? It's a very hard thing to talk about. There are almost 6,000 missing and murdered American Indian women. Throughout the United States? Throughout the United States and Canada. As a matter of fact, one of the hot spots that we have learned about is on the border of North and South Carolina. The I-95 corridor we already know is a corridor for human trafficking, and Native American women are very easily human trafficked because of the poverty, but that's not necessarily the reason. It's a very small portion of the reason. What we're discovering is that because of the fossil fuel industries who are setting up pipelines or built excuse me building pipelines across our reservations without our permission are also setting up what's called man camps. right now there are 600 trailers that are being set up on the border of my reservation at pine ridge um i say my reservation i want to point out i have never lived there but that is the origin of my tribe So there's 600 trailers right on the border of where vulnerable Native American women and girls are living and that is where a great percentage of the disappearance and the murders and the assaults take place. So what can be done?
0: What can you do in the work that you're doing? I know you're an activist and feel very strongly about social justice. What can be done? What are you doing?
1: We do what we have to do. Uh, I think you, very f- everyone is probably very familiar with Standing Rock. I was only there for a very short time. For two days every Thanksgiving, I served food, so I was not a person who was involved on the front lines or anything of that sort. I can take no credit for any of that. But when I say f- we, I mean my people, we faced dog attacks, tear gas, pepper spray, concussion grenades, freezing cold water in zero degrees weather, water cannons. It was terrifying. We were doing nothing. If you, if you watch videos, you can see that there's nothing going on but people standing still and praying. But yet, there were people that were dressed in, in front of us as if they were coming to a war. Now, make no mistake about it, it was a war. We just conduct ourselves differently. We pray and we stand and we don't move and we don't budge. And that's what we're going to continue to do. We're not going to move and we're not going to budge.
0: But you have been subject of an arrest. Yes, more than one, (laughs) more than once, because you stood up for your beliefs. I did. And what were you arrested for?
1: I was arrested as part of the Poor People's Campaign. And that, for me, was an honor. The Poor People's Campaign is a part of Dr. Martin Luther King's plan, and he was unable to carry out that part of his plan because he was assassinated. He believed that the next issue in human rights that he wanted to work on was that of poverty, because poverty is probably one of the greatest issues in human rights, because poverty causes people not to be educated, not to have safe housing, not to have medical care. It causes so many issues that it's overwhelming. So this is what he wanted to address, and I deeply believe in that. I work with a Poor People campaign in Colombia, and we set up what is called a direct action. A direct action is where you do something that brings attention to a cause by doing something illegal. Let's put it that way. But you do it in such a way that you actually do—we involve the Columbia City Police. They, they were very, very good. They knew exactly what we were going to do. They announced probably three times that now you have a chance to remove yourself if you don't want to be arrested. If you have changed your mind, I have to really give them a lot of credit for being ready for us and understanding that you know, this was going to happen, but we made sure that they knew about it, uh, but it was still a difficult arrest to me because I was arrested with clergy and people who were literally in their 80s and 90s, uh, very, very elderly women. And I f- could feel all of their strength, but at the same time, you feel very vulnerable once you are cuffed and you are in custody and put in a van and taken. Literally, you're, you know you're going to jail and no matter what you do to work yourself up to be ready for that, you never are.
0: This arrest was for blocking a road, was that right? Yes, that's
1: correct, we did. We blocked a road at at five o'clock traffic. Um, We inconvenienced people terribly. Uh, We were even apologizing to some people who were, you know, opening their windows saying what are you doing and we 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 actually explained it to some people and they said hey that's cool I, i'll back up and i'll go around the other the other way but some people were fairly mad at us did it achieve what you wanted getting the attention this was actually done i think for 49 days there were 49 direct actions that wasn't the only time So yes, I think that it did. It was done in every state in the United States. It was done in Washington. Um, And we're still continuing now our work. Uh, Will not be direct actions, but it will be more about working with clergy and other legislators and community members to try to work on issues of poverty.
0: So it doesn't worry you that you now have an arrest record and you you were in jail. You were willing to do this because?
1: Yes, I was willing to do this. The first time that I went to jail, I was 17 years old, and I was protesting the development of South Carolina barrier islands and some of the ecosystems there. So it wasn't my first rodeo, and that was a little bit scary then. I was very young, I had no idea what I was really getting myself into. I just knew that it was something that had to be done. And when something has to be done to make changes, sometimes you have to do extreme things. You tend to find
0: the humanity in any situation. Where did that come from? Was it something you were born with? Did you develop it as you were growing up?
1: I think it is a bit instinctual. I think that it comes also from my traditional values in that I relate to everyone as a relative. I relate even to four-legged creatures and winged creatures and sea creatures as my relatives. Um, They are my brothers and sisters. So everyone is a relative to me and, you know, that's a basic value in my tribe. And so everyone is deserved of the same humane treatment and rights as anyone else.
0: Did you learn this from your parents growing up? Was that part of it or part of what you read, the history of your
1: ancestors? No, I especially learned this from my father. He was one of those people who would sit on the side of your bed and tell you stories until you went to sleep and he would often tell me stories of great people. And I used to love to hear the stories that he would tell me. Uh, There would be all different types of people that he would tell me about. So apparently he had read a lot of books about good leaders, and he would always say, before I would go to sleep, Terry, don't be a follower, be a leader. Be like one of these people. And so I got a lot of that from him.
0: And you mentioned he walked when he was 16 years old? He did. To Columbia. So why did he want to be a part of the military?
1: He wanted to fly, and he did. He was the um, United States Air Force military attache to the Shah of Iran at the end of his career.
0: I guess I'm having this issue with so many problems that Native Americans have faced, and yet there's this loyalty through this service in the military.
1: It's because it's our land. We protect our land. Before we could even vote, you know, we have participated in every conflict in this country, even prior to the Revolutionary War. And it's because this is our land. I've heard many, many stories about the Navajo co-talkers, Cyan co-talkers, the co-talkers who helped to win World War II. Um, The stories that I read about them, they've often been asked, why did you go and do this? You, You weren't even able to vote. And they've said, I asked, they were very young, I asked, are they going to hurt us? Are they trying to take our land? And the answer was, yes, they might. And they said, We'll go with you. We're going to protect our land.
0: So it was that tie to the land.
1: Yes, absolutely. It's always a tie to the land.
0: You mentioned leadership. How would you define a leader?
1: I would define a leader as anyone who helps anyone on a daily basis, whether it's picking up someone's groceries they dropped or helping them to get on a bus or teaching a child a new skill or doing something on a massive scale does not always have to indicate leadership. I think leadership is in everyone. And at any moment, anyone can be a leader. It's a choice. You know, you make that choice whether or not you're going to stop and help.
0: So very much of a servant leader, then, is what you're talking about.
1: You're always in service when you're in leadership. Leadership is not power. It is about service. Was there
0: a teacher or an individual who inspired you growing up?
1: Absolutely. And uh, it gives me great joy to talk about this. My favorite teacher growing up was actually at Tehran American School. His name was Charles Berichter. He was my music teacher. One of the first things that he did was teach me how to breathe correctly. So I'm often in a lot of stressful situations and I go into that so naturally and breathing correctly so I don't hyperventilate. Another thing he taught me was how to use my voice. He gave me great confidence in how to sing and to speak and to project my voice in such a way that I would be heard. I think he almost had some kind of foresight in knowing that this was something I was going to need to do. So he gave me the confidence to do that. And it's been a pleasure because I've actually, um, good old Facebook, (laughs) have been able to find him on Facebook and thank him for um, the things that he did for me as a teenager and the help that he gave me. I'm very grateful.
0: That gave you voice, literally. He did.
1: He literally gave me my voice.
0: What would your advice be to a young woman today?
1: My advice to a young woman today would be that the world belongs to you, that you have every right to go out and make the changes that you feel are appropriate, that you have the right to use your voice, that you have the right to say no. It's only two letters, N and O. You have the right to say no to anything that you feel is inappropriate in your life. And you have the right as a woman always to uplift other women. And when I say the right, it is a right amongst us as women. We should consider that a right. We should should consider that on our list of rights, that this is what I'm going to write I am going to uplift other women so that they can be empowered and that they can move forward with the work in their lives, whether it's just raising their children or pursuing a career or making changes in the world that they want to make.
0: 2020 marks 100 years of women gaining the right to vote.
1: Yes. What does that right of voting mean to you? My people were not able to vote until almost, it was 1948. So that was a very long time after women were given the vote. But at the same time, I think a lot of people don't realize that women suffered greatly, some lost their lives to achieve that for women. And we're half of the population. We are the balance in this world. We are matrilineal. We are the nurturers and the peacekeepers and the female warriors who are the balance to our male kin. And if we don't vote and we don't affect that, it would be a very, very different world. So we need to remember that as women, our vote is extraordinarily important because we need to keep that balance in the world.
0: Thank you very much, T. Lily Littlewater.
1: It's been a pleasure. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to Women Vision SC, a podcast production of South Carolina Public Radio. You can find video stories and other resources on KnowItAll and SCETV.org. The producer of Women Vision SC for South Carolina Public Radio and the podcast series is A.T. Shire. William Richardson is the producer-director of the television series. Zhao Yu is associate producer and Becca Turner is production assistant. Tyora Moody is web manager. Bobby Kennedy is director of special projects. For SCE-TV and South Carolina Public Radio, I'm Linda O'Brien. Thanks for
1: joining us.